Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm one of your hosts, Shani Reichman, and I am recording from New York City. And I'm Evan Gottesman, hosting from San Francisco. Shani, when we're recording these podcasts during this COVID time and everyone's scattered to the far corners of the earth, our other host, Eli, has been traveling around. I understand you are going to be shifting time zones soon as well. That's right. I'm actually headed to Austin, Texas in about a week or two. So you can check back in with me and and see where I'm at in the next podcast we record. Any secret diplomatic mission with another Arab state in Texas? Oh, you know, I can't disclose that sort of thing, Evan. You'll just have to wait and find out with me and and Benny Gantz at the same time. We're all going to be similarly left out of the loop on the seven to nine Arab countries that I can only assume are going to be meeting with you uh, when you make your travel plans to Texas in the coming weeks. So we'll have to follow those developments. But there are two Arab countries that we know have now normalized relations with Israel. That's right. Um, just uh, just yesterday, I think they made it official. Yes. So yesterday we had the first signing of official relations between Israel and another Arab country in over 25 years with the signing ceremony for normalization agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain. The Trump administration mediated this process. A lot of polarizing reactions from across the spectrum and all interested parties from Israelis, Palestinians, Americans, other Arab states. So there is a lot to unpack here. And we've been going over this on some of our previous podcasts, but now it's official. So I just wanted to, you know, check in and get reactions. Shani, where are you on this? Well, I'm a little bit conflicted because as a Zionist and, you know, someone working at a pro-Israel organization, it's pretty exciting to see Israel normalizing ties with the Arab world. And it's definitely a source of pride. The idea that there could be flights between Dubai and Tel Aviv is definitely really exciting. And just generally to have Israel, you know, viewed as a, a real neighbor and a partner in the region instead of this kind of pariah definitely feels very positive. But as someone working in an organization that's really narrowly focused on the conflict with the Palestinians, we really should be discussing how this impacts the prospects for a two-state solution, if at all. I mean, ultimately, the UAE does not and probably never has posed a real security threat to Israel. So it still has to take a back seat in relation to the peace with actual neighbors. That is an excellent point. And going right ahead to zero in on the Palestinian question, I mean, when you look at the actual text of the Abraham Accords, The issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict receives one passing mention. There is no mention to the two-state solution. There's no mention to the Arab Peace Initiative, which was this proposal put forward by the Arab League that all these Arab League countries had signed on to, including the UAE and Bahrain back in 2002, that basically laid out a framework where Israel could normalize relations with the Arab world in exchange for ending the occupation of the Palestinian territories and producing a two-state solution. And this was kind of seen as the uh, undergirding of Israel's relations with the other Arab countries basically up until now, um, at least formally. But that framework is not mentioned here. And in practice, the Abraham Accords essentially moves past this, this uh, Arab peace initiative. 
So um, definitely for those who care about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there are things beyond the obvious positives. I mean, normal relations between countries is generally a good thing um, that people, people may be concerned about and understandably so. That's true, although we do have to acknowledge the most obvious and important way that this impacted our mission statement, which was that which was that it prevented annexation or imminent annexation. Um, of course, we have to be pretty honest and and realistic about the fact that we don't know how long that will hold for. Um, we've been hearing uh, very confusing comments from Netanyahu and from the Emiratis and from Trump. Uh, nobody has been 100 percent clear about what it means for annexation in the long term, but it definitely did. Um, did play a role in preventing it imminently. So it's that's something that we have to take into account when assessing the benefits. Definitely. I mean, you bring up a good point about annexation, which at least ostensibly was the thing that brought these agreements forward. Um, on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of reason, at least from my perspective, to be skeptical about where Israel sits on annexation now and where the Trump administration sits on this, because um, I don't think we should forget who is moving the levers in the Trump administration. And it's the policy team that put together the Trump administration's peace to prosperity proposal, which formalized annexation, an official part of American foreign policy. Uh, the Trump administration's proposal had called for annexation by Israel of up to 30 percent of the West Bank. And all of the Jewish settlements there, you you kind of touched upon this. There is this understanding now that annexation won't be endorsed by the U.S. for four years. But again, this is not an administration that really has the Palestinians' interests um, in mind. Um, certainly, Palestinians have felt betrayed or left behind by other administrations. But at least um, it seemed like they were making an effort here. Uh, the intentions, I think, have been pretty clear. And so, you know, I'm a little skeptical and their message is coming straight from the Israeli government about this. I mean, earlier today, we heard from uh, the incoming Israeli ambassador to the United Nations and the United States, Gilad Erdan, who said that even though annexation is no longer a priority for the United States, no longer a priority for the Trump administration, it's not off the table for Israel. And it's something that Israel and the United States can kind of reconvene on after the U.S. presidential election. And I think you can take that as an implicit wink and nod at the possibility of a Trump victory in the November presidential election. And at that point, I think, you know, all all bets are off in a way. Um, I think that part of the motivation and, and from the Arab state's perspective in setting up these agreements is preparing themselves for a second Trump administration and setting themselves up to succeed in achieving their foreign policy objectives, whether it's countering Iran or getting access to a wider catalog of American-made weapons under that second Trump administration and second term. So, um, you know, if there's a second term, they may go back to the drawing board and say, okay, they're not going to have as much uh, democratic resistance in the U.S. to deal with when it comes to annexation, at least in the near term. And they can revisit this in the next four years. So, and that's leaving aside Prime Minister Netanyahu's motivations. You know, some, one of the things that I found most disappointing um, about the past week was how quickly um, Bahrain, the, the second country to sort of begin normalizing ties, went ahead with it. Because what I would have liked to see was that each country um, among the Arab states who decides to normalize ties with Israel has a different ask. 
And, and, you know, instead of it just being one country requested preventing annexation, maybe the first prevents annexation, the second requests um, opening an in, in embassy to the Palestinians, things of that nature, you know, having some sort of incentive for, for the Israelis to move towards peace and even for um, the Palestinians to move towards peace. And, you know, we didn't really see that and I'm not so sure we will. Um, even though I, I do feel very confident that, that um, the ball's really in, in the court of the Gulf states because Israelis are so excited by the prospect of being able to have these ties and 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 to travel to Dubai and and have all of these, you know, um, fun adventures in, in the Gulf um, that they they I think would be very open to making movement on the Palestinian front if that was what was being asked of them. And for some reason, it just isn't. And Evan and my colleagues at Israel Policy Forum know that I love bringing up Khalil Shikaki's polls. But um, one of the things that he does repeatedly in his Israeli-Palestinian uh joint pulse polls, I think they're called, is that he asks Israelis um, if they support a two-state solution. And then the ones who say they oppose it, he then goes ahead and asks them, what if we were to incentivize a two-state solution for you? Sweeten the deal or carrots, as they say. And he asks them a couple different things and he sort of offers them. And almost half of the people who previously opposed the two-state solution, if they are offered normalization with the Arab world, will then support it. So we can see that it actually is a really big deal for Israelis. And if you were interested in using it as a carrot to pull them closer to peace in two states, you really could. Um, it just seems that for some reason the Gulf states haven't been very opportunistic around this, perhaps because they have um, they actually don't uh, care for the Palestinian cause, um, just as the Palestinian Authority is claiming. Right. And I, I would ask you, how do you square this line of thought with the idea that the status quo has kind of been broken. You know, the idea that you could put this forward as a carrot for Israelis is something that tracks well with the Arab Peace Initiative and this idea that Israel couldn't get relations with the Gulf until um, they moved ahead with ending the occupation and pursuing a two-state solution. But here we are, and you have relations with the UAE and Bahrain, and there's the possibility of more countries coming down the pipeline, whether or not you rely precisely on the numbers put forward by President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, you know, seven to nine more countries. Um, yeah, so I'm curious your reaction on that. Well, uh, you're calling me out on being a little too optimistic, but I think that until we see who the five to seven countries are, there is potential for them to be a little bit harder on Trump and Netanyahu than the Emirates and the Bahrainis were. Um, I would imagine some of the countries being named are are actually going to be a little bit tougher and and there is potential for them to call for a settlement freeze or something else. When we talk about countries um, like Saudi Arabia or Qatar, which um, probably wouldn't be the first um, but maybe could be among the last. They they actually, I could see them having larger asks of Israel. And I'm still hopeful that perhaps it will be something that is kind of aligned with the sort of policies that, that you and I advocate for. I think it's possible, but I think that these countries have already fairly well established that their interests just don't align with the Palestinians and that this is not a cause that they're really uh, invested in, even though some of them, including Bahrain and the UAE, are still clinging to the Arab Peace Initiative. They're saying that what they're doing is consistent with it. Um, you know, I think that there are objectives that they want to pursue in Washington that they see these deals as an outlet for. I think that there are direct incentives they see to relations with Israel um, as concerns business opportunities, as concerns access 
you know, I mentioned access to American weapons, but also purchasing uh, Israeli arms. And that means now, for example, that Israeli defense companies don't have to operate through shell companies in Europe. They can just deal directly um, and a whole bunch of other things there. And and the Palestinians here kind of left behind. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong on this. If there were a case where, you know, you could effectively uh, bring pressure to bear against Israel and, and um, recenter the Palestinian issue. And if the Gulf states found a responsible way to take the lead on that, then, then sure. Um, you know, you bring up Israeli public opinion and uh, the Shikaki polls. And also I would direct our listeners. Uh, there's a new and very informative poll out from Khalil Shikaki's Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research that just came out yesterday. And I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, there have been efforts at, at public outreach to the wider Israeli electorate when it comes to these kinds of initiatives from the Arab states. Um, I mean, this is kind of what the Arab Peace Initiative was. Um, the Arab Peace Initiative was in a way sort of ill-fated because uh, when it was released, it happened to be the day after there was a really horrible uh, suicide bombing in Netanya during a Passover celebration uh, that killed 30 people in a hotel. Um, and so the public's uh, interest and, uh, you know, attention in Israel was naturally elsewhere when that proposal came out. But even years later, because this has formally been on the table since 2002, and there were similar proposals earlier in the 1980s, um, you know, years later, the Palestinians put ads in Hebrew language media promoting the Arab Peace Initiative, and it didn't really move the needle. So again, things could change. I mean, this, this is a big change, normalization. Um, but I'm, I'm curious um, or wonder what you think. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you have some thoughts on what could bring this more to front of mind for Israelis, because from my perspective, uh, the message that this sends is essentially uh, the Palestinian issue uh, is ancillary to this. There's not a direct connection, and we can achieve our objectives in the Gulf without having to move things with the Palestinians. Well, I'll unfortunately have to agree with you that I don't think it has the potential to to maybe bring the, the full two-state solution or a viable one. I just think there are a few more um, cards on the table that the Gulf states are leaving and, and for some reason not taking advantage of. And I'm hopeful that maybe a few of the countries at least will will take the opportunity to push the needle at least a little bit um, and maybe bring the Palestinians uh, forward. Although one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is some of the potential um, some of the potential benefits, um, one of which could be sort of renewing how we view diplomatic relations with Egypt and Jordan given that Egypt came out in support of the deal. And I'm I'm wondering, Evan, what your thoughts are, if there's any potential to have warmer ties, ties that kind of bring in the, the people on the ground. Now, in Jordan, that's probably much less realistic, but at least in Egypt, maybe there's an opportunity to have um, ties that are, are less frigid, you could say. I think that there are still a lot of obstacles in the way of that, given the historic associations with the population of Egypt, and certainly, as you mentioned, Jordan. Um, things are really in a deep freeze with Egypt in a way that I think a lot of people don't fully understand, and in a way that sets these agreements with Bahrain and the UAE apart, where you have 
real people to people exchanges, real business exchanges that are out in the open, a real celebration of these ties as opposed to what happened in the years since 1978 with Egypt and since 1994 with Jordan, where things have been kind of hush-hush. For example, I was talking to someone last summer who travels fairly frequently between Egypt and Israel, and they were saying to me that if you want to fly between uh, Israel and Egypt, despite the existence of official relations, you're essentially emailing someone at the Egyptian airline company to arrange a seat on what is effectively a charter flight that is not really publicly advertised, as opposed to the way that uh, you or I could just hop on a United or El Al flight uh, from New York to Tel Aviv um, or, or San Francisco and Tel Aviv or, or wherever places in Europe um, and have no issue with it. Not during COVID times, not encouraging anyone to do international travel unnecessarily right now if they can avoid it. There's a lot of progress that still has to be made on those fronts. I don't think there's a real immediate threat of war between Israel and Egypt or Israel and Jordan, which is certainly a good thing and is the main takeaway from those countries' peace treaties with Israel. Uh, but there's a lot of progress that still has to be made on this normalization front, and it may require progress with the Palestinians and with the issue of the occupation and the two-state solution to get there. Um, with the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, they very clearly made an intention to publicly celebrate and advertise their ties with Israel. Um, and they have curated this image very carefully. It's important to remember that all of these countries, also Jordan and Egypt, are not democracies. They are authoritarian governments and, and they can really have a lot of power in crafting the narrative that comes out of those countries all the same um, some of the worst moments in Israel-Jordan relations and Israel-Egypt relations since the signing of those countries' respective peace treaties with Israel. For example, uh, the Israeli embassies in those countries have come under attack during kind of violent protests in recent years. I wouldn't expect that to happen in Abu Dhabi or in Manama, uh, at least in, in the near future. So uh, that's a good thing. And, and I know that I keep doubling down on this cynical, skeptical analysis as you keep providing really good and well thought out reasons to uh, be optimistic about this from the Israeli-Palestinian perspective. Uh, so, you know, I I guess there, there's beyond the obvious that uh, I think normal relations are a good thing between most countries. I mean, Israel has relations, again, with 163 other countries. No one is out there questioning Israel's relations with Germany or Canada or Brazil or China or any countries that, you know, you wouldn't give a second thought to. So the same rule should, you know, theoretically apply to the other Arab countries. Um, at the same time, everything given can be taken away. Uh, if there is another issue with annexation, um, it's a different perspective from the UAE and Bahrain and any other countries that follow their example. Before, they didn't have relations with Israel, so they could, you know, scream and shout, but... Uh, Everything else was under the table, so they weren't real. They didn't really have any anything up front and in public to present to the Israeli people. Now they do. The root of my skepticism, my question is, will they really leverage this? Because I don't think they have an interest in leveraging that. But it is something that they have now that they didn't have before. That's definitely a good point. And as you know, I'm going to remain uh, as optimistic as possible regarding it. But to become a bit more of a pessimist and point out um, my one issue or my, my most 
significant issue with the UAE deal, uh, which I think you can guess. And it actually probably overrides every potential positive as I can see it, which is the sale of F-35s to the United Arab Emirates. Just to provide our listeners with a bit of a, a bit of context, F-35s are very advanced aircraft. From what I understand, and I'm not an expert, they can strike and also drop bombs and are also undetectable. So um, they're an incredibly impressive weapon. And as of right now, Israel is the only country in the Middle East that's authorized to purchase them. And the reason for that is because the United States is committed to making sure that Israel is the most powerful military in the Middle East, or what we call has a qualitative military edge, a QME. And uh, amidst this deal, there has been a lot of talk, especially from the Emiratis and even from Trump's confirmation, that they will now be able to purchase F-35s. And that's something that as someone who's pretty concerned with Israel's security, I take issue with. I'll also note that uh, we're getting sort of mixed messages from Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump um, regarding whether this will occur or not. And uh, I'd also like to add that it's needless to say that the security establishment in Israel um, is very concerned at this prospect, not because they necessarily don't trust the UAE at the moment, but because in the Middle East, there's a tendency for regime changes, as my colleague Evan uh, wrote in a piece this week. And so it it reasonably uh, brings up a lot of a lot of questions and a lot of hesitation in the Israeli public. Evan, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just reinforcing your point there, the F-35 is the most advanced jet fighter available for export from the United States. So this is something that would have a real impact if brought to other countries in the Middle East. Um, I don't want to say that Israel is a country apart, but with things like the QME, which is a concept enshrined in American law, um, there are acts of Congress on the books that say that the United States has to maintain the qualitative military edge. You don't have Israel playing into the exact same dynamics of these other Arab states uh, because they're kind of in a category of their own in terms of the quality of their military. Um, but, you know, you bring an F-35 to the UAE, um, which, by the way, isn't something that would happen overnight. Uh, but you you arm the UAE with F-35s. And then maybe Saudi Arabia also wants them or Egypt. Um, you know, Turkey was supposed to get them until they ended up purchasing uh, Russian S-400 anti-aircraft batteries. Uh, but, you know, there, there's certainly interest in the wider Middle East for this aircraft. Uh, so there are concerns about an arms race. Uh, there are concerns, again, as you identified with QME. And there are concerns about the UAE's human rights record. Uh, they were waging alongside Saudi Arabia, a pretty destructive war in Yemen. And Congress has tried to stop unsuccessfully uh, the Trump administration's arming of the UAE and Saudi Arabia as recently as last year. So I think that members of Congress, especially if President Trump is reelected, would face a an uphill battle when it comes to stopping this sale. But there is interest in, in Congress in, in at least uh, providing a check or a stopgap against the sale of F-35s to the UAE. We've seen Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the former chair of the Democratic National Committee, speak out. Uh, yesterday, we saw Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, in her statement on the Abraham Accords, which she praised generally, uh, but she criticized this idea of a sale of F-35 
to the UAE. So it's something that is going to continue to develop and will probably be the biggest sticking point out of this, you know, for an agreement that was predicated on Israel stopping annexation. The real obstacle in the road has nothing to do with the Palestinians. It's about this American warplane. If at the end of the day, it's between losing Israel's QME or losing direct flights to Dubai, I think it's pretty clear we'll take the latter. So um, if, if we can't really get past this issue, I don't know how they can expect people to continue celebrating this, but that's just my take. So Evan, I think it's about the time in, in any podcast where we take bets on who the next country will be. Um, my guess is, or my money is on Oman, but that's mostly because I'm really dying to visit there. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the beaches, very pretty. Um, so that's, I have uh, my own skin in the game there, but I'm curious to know. You know, it's, it's a good thing for people to be able to travel where they weren't able to before. Um, kind of a thumb in the eye of the Palestinians who have to deal with all sorts of onerous travel restrictions and, uh, you know, freedom of movement issues. Um, but, you know, one thing is not necessarily tied to the other. Uh, I hate to be unoriginal, but um, I'm going to piggyback off of your uh, prediction and also say Oman. Um, they were one of the countries that was uh, visited by Trump administration officials in recent weeks. Also, remember that Prime Minister Netanyahu met with the late Sultan Qaboos of Oman in 2018. So there's certainly reason to believe that they would be on the shortlist. They're also a country that doesn't have like an outstanding conflict with Israel. Um, because, I mean, you have other countries, for example, like Sudan, which is also a more immediate possibility, but on the other hand, uh, has more complicated relations with Israel directly. I mean, it's played host to Palestinian militants before. Um, Israel has uh, clandestinely launched airstrikes against Sudan. And, you know, until recently, Sudan was affiliated with the Iranian-backed bloc in the Middle East and North Africa. So Oman and Israel haven't fought a war. There hasn't been an exchange of fire between their armed forces necessarily. Uh, you can't say the same about a country like Sudan, even though it's also on the short list. And then, yeah, and then you have countries. Saudi Arabia is the big prize for Israel and the Trump administration. Oh, yes. They had their eye on them for a while. And with Saudi Arabia, building off what I was saying before about the UAE, you have a partisan political issue in the United States. I mean, Saudi Arabia has become very unpopular on Capitol Hill in the wake of the war in Yemen, also the execution of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. There's been a lot of takes coming out of this, and I'm curious what you think about this, Shani, um, that personally I found to be a little missing the point where they're like, you know, this is a victory for authoritarianism because Israel's making peace with all these dictators and it doesn't matter. And of course, you know, again, I don't think that we should miss that these are dictators and these are bad governments and I don't envy the people who have to live under them. Um, but at the same time, Israel didn't create these governments and they're kind of working with uh, what they've got. They also have relations with pretty much every democratic country in the world. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a difference between just having relations with uh, an authoritarian government. You know, Israel has relations, again, with Egypt and Jordan, and they have relations with Russia and China um, and other 
less than democratic countries outside of the Middle East, um, and also like celebrating and, you know, cheering on the relations and, and making a big fanfare about it. And I wonder, you know, we, we have all these issues of Israel becoming a partisan issue here in the United States uh, over the Palestinian issue, over annexation, over the occupation. And I wonder if this association between Israel and the Gulf states, like a very public association and also behind the scenes political association with Israel potentially lobbying for uh, better treatment of their governments by Congress, that you could also see that become part of the part partisanization of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Well, I'll definitely echo the discomfort that I that I experience around seeing Israel cozy up to countries that uh, are have some really horrible human rights violations, frankly, uh, depending on which country we're talking about. And I I would much prefer to see Israel aligned with and and friendly with you know the Europe. Uh, the European countries and the Canadas of the world, uh, which of course they are. Um, that said, uh, I do think there there is some case to be made that, uh, as I think you mentioned, if you're close allies with a country, there's a little more room for you to pressure them. Do I actually think that Israel is going to pressure the Emirates um, to, uh, you know, have more uh, freedom of speech in their country or something of that nature? No, I don't. I don't actually think they will. But in theory. Um, one could argue that it, it makes more sense to come from a place of friendship, just as the United States, as the, the closest ally of Israel, is often in a better position to make requests of the country. Not not to say that the Emirates is going to be an ally like the United States, though. Sure. I also think that it doesn't serve pro-democracy activists and people who are dissidents in these countries well if Israel is associated with their movements, given that despite their government's more warm embrace of Israel in recent times, Israel remains deeply unpopular among most of the public in the Arab world. Um, and so it doesn't do them any favors to uh, see you know, Israel lecturing them on human rights when it's been a pretty common tactic, remains a common tactic with a lot of these Arab dictators to associate their opposition with Israel and say that, you know, any of these revolutions or uprisings or protests are the work of the Mossad and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's not something that I imagine would happen. And also Israel doesn't really have a direct interest in it, um, although you, you sort of hinted at and, uh, you know, in the long grand scheme of things, uh, it's something to consider with this QME issue being a question of not do you trust the person who's in power today? It's a question of, is their regime stable? And who replaces him when the people get tired, throw them out of power, and you have a new government? So, uh, you know, a really complicated dynamic there. So, Shani, any closing thoughts on this very much open-ended issue? Well, despite your greatest efforts, I'm remaining optimistic about this until I see that there is a sale of F-35s to the UAE, at which point I will concede that overall, this was probably not a win for Israel or the region. What about you? I think you're painting me as a little more of a skeptic than I really am. I mean, I'm not going to say that this is a bad thing. Um, my personal feelings about President Trump and his team and Prime Minister Netanyahu notwithstanding. Um, again, I think that you're really hard-pressed these days to make a case that these countries shouldn't have 
at least the existence of normal relations. Again, how those relations play out is an open question. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot still out there. Uh, but you, you present a really good case. And, and I think that, that people should be examining all sides of this. And remember that this is not just something between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain. It's also Israel and the United States and these countries in the United States. And chief among all of this, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And Israel Policy Forum has a whole lot of resources on this. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we've done previous programs on this. If you haven't tuned into them, we've examined this from a couple of different angles. We spoke with Ksenia Svetlova uh, in Israel. We spoke with Sarah Hershorn, expert on the settlement movement about settlers' reaction. So check all of that out. And with that, I think we can wrap this up. So to all of our listeners celebrating the Rosh Hashanah holiday, beginning on Friday evening, Shana Tova Umetuka. Shana Tova, Evan, and all of our listeners. And we will catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod. Mm-hmm.